Welcome to War Stories. I'm Preston Stewart, and this is a show where we talk about America's military history through the lens of individual acts of heroism and valor. Enjoy. Today we have the story of Private First Class Daniel Bruce. Daniel Bruce would enlist in the United States Marine Corps in May of 1968. That date's important, so we're going to come back to it. And we'll go on to see service in the Vietnam War. Now, stepping back a little bit, the Vietnam War at a very, very, very high level is going to be a conflict between the North Vietnamese and the South Vietnamese. The North is going to be supported by the Soviet Union and China. South Vietnamese is going to be South Vietnam, specifically the government, is going to be supported by Western democracies with the United States providing the bulk of support throughout the conflict. It's going to be an incredibly deadly time for the country, um, for the region, and for the parties that are involved, like the United States. The conflict stems from both the North and the South really wanting to have a unified country like they had in the past and, and like we have today. The difference being North Vietnam was looking to install a communist government across the country, whereas South Vietnam did not want that. And you can see now how the Soviet Union lines up well with one side and the United States lines up well with another. And this was an issue throughout the Cold War where both parties wanted to see their ideology either spread or not gain or not lose any territory. And in this window in the 1960s and 1970s, Vietnam was center stage and it became an incredibly deadly conflict for, for all involved. So if we're talking about something like an ideology, it's a different type of conflict than we would have in World War II where – you know, in the Pacific, we're pushing the Japanese back to their main island. And in, in the European theater, we're closing in on Germany and moving them back into their borders and hopefully toppling the government. This is different. This is a war of ideas, and it's hard. Not to discount what was done in World War II, but it's almost easier by comparison when you can see the objective. It's not super clear what the objective is and how you're going to go about doing it in a conflict like Vietnam. The United States struggled with how to measure success and struggled with how to actually win this war from the get-go. And I don't know that we've gotten a whole lot better in Iraq and Afghanistan. We're really good at fighting wars and fighting enemies. It's an incredibly, incredibly difficult ask to win the war of the people and win the hearts and minds of the people in that country. One of the reasons that was such a challenge in Vietnam was we are talking about an area that's essentially in the middle of a civil war. So... North Vietnamese, South Vietnamese, they speak the same language. They have many of the same customs. The different person, the different group is the United States. So if you're a South Vietnamese uh, citizen, who are you more likely to listen to? Somebody from North Vietnam that maybe is even a family relative or a friend, or you at least know them, or this random American that comes in and needs a translator and tells you that don't do don't do what the North Vietnamese say. Communism's bad. I mean, I can see if I'm sitting in South Vietnam, how much easier it would be to believe the North Vietnamese. So the United States was having an uphill battle trying to keep that influence out of South Vietnam. The South Vietnamese were struggling as well. They had enough issues of their own that they were trying to resolve. And it just turned into a very, very challenging period of time. Now, if you're going to help influence the people out and about in South Vietnam, you can't do it from the United States. You can't even do it from major bases all across South Vietnam. You have to be around the people because the minute you're not, that North Vietnamese supporter 
or citizen shows up and, and says, well, hold on, let me explain why what we're doing is better. And bam, all of a sudden you've got another supporter in South Vietnam makes it that much harder to win the war from the view of, of the South. So we need to have people out and about in the communities, at least nearby the communities. But that's a problem because it's hostile. And when you get away from these major bases and even happen at these major bases, you end up in areas where the enemy is attacking often and in strength. So the U.S. doesn't want to put forces out there in the middle of nowhere unless they can have some sort of protection. Well, the old standby in terms of protection is going to be field artillery. Large caliber 105 or 155 millimeter cannons that can rain down high explosives pretty accurately. And depending on the size of the weapon, is either going to be maybe a 10-mile range, somewhere sometimes upwards of a 20-mile range. It provides this level of comfort, a blanket of support for people that are going to be out and about in the field, possibly engaging in close-quarters combat with North Vietnamese soldiers or Viet Cong. There's air cover, of course, across the entire country, but there's this you know, if weather turns bad, aircraft can't fly. If there's, and, and helicopters run out of gas, planes run out of bombs and have to go back to base and pick up more. But artillery, the old standby, can fire in the nasty weather. And of course, they can run out of supplies as well, but they generally are able to fire for a longer period of time than a plane is going to be on station. So if the United States can place artillery all over the country, then we've got these overlapping circles that we can go in and operate, understanding that we've got some level of support. The answer to that is going to be something called a fire base. Now, a fire base is going to be a temporary to permanent structure. And I say structure, that's, that's, um, we use that very loosely in select areas around Vietnam. And there's going to have barbed wire, maybe some uh, small buildings made out of wood and sandbags. And it's going to have a battery of of uh, artillery pieces designed to support the, you know, 10 to 20 mile radius around it. Well, you know, think of it like a circle of coverage. And if you have South Vietnam, you have to put troops all over the ground and you can strategically place all of these circles. And then all of a sudden you've got a third, half, all of South Vietnam covered with artillery fires. Now, one of the challenges to these fire bases was you couldn't just put a series of guns out in the middle of the jungle. They had to be protected. So as much as, uh, so you have to pick a spot that is good enough for the artillery to fire, sufficient enough for the artillery to fire, but then you need somebody on the ground to be able to protect those artillerymen while they're firing. I mean, it's no good if those guys, instead of manning their cannons are having to repel attacks on their base all day. So you end up with companies or platoons that are assigned to these fire bases and it's their entire job to defend the perimeter. Now, the perimeter of these fire bases is not going to be the same as what you'd see on major air bases around the country. Remember, it's temporary. And it's not always clear if that fire base is going to be in use for two days, a week, or three years. So they kind of evolve as you go. You know, if you moved into a location in Vietnam and said, we're going to be here for five years, you're going to do certain things. You're going to really reinforce your perimeter. You might even start cutting down vegetation out to 300 meters. So you have a clear field of view and the enemy can't sneak up on you. But if you have limited resources and you think you're only going to be there for two weeks, you might place your priorities elsewhere. That's one of the challenges with firebases. Another challenge with firebases is that they are a prime target for enemy fighters. 
Now, it's not to say that the North Vietnamese, especially, and sometimes Viet Cong, can overwhelm U.S. forces all over the country in terms of numbers, but fire bases are an especially appealing target. Remember, they're these temporary locations. They may not be put together quite as nicely as some of the larger bases. They have the opportunity to provide the Viet Cong or North Vietnamese Vietnamese, a decisive victory. So rather than just attacking some Americans out on a patrol, if they could overrun an American base, if they could capture artillery pieces, what a victory. What a propaganda piece. And these fire bases placed all over the country are incredibly tempting in terms of risk reward. Now, one of the major challenges to do this is you have to get through the perimeter. And when we're talking about a temporary perimeter, something that's been in use since World War I and very, very heavily used in World War I is going to be barbed wire, concertina wire, razor wire, wire, something that will stop the enemy and at least hold them up for a period of time. Now, you can get past it, but if you've got machine guns, firing at you and mortars coming down around you and and people firing their rifles at you. The last thing you want to do is have to stop and figure out how to untangle your your pants from from barbed wire. That's kind of the goal of this wire. Just provide an impediment. It doesn't have to stop the enemy forever. It just has to slow them up enough to where the people manning all of the the positions on the perimeter can, can, can shoot and kill the attacking enemy soldiers. So... The Viet Cong, the North Vietnamese, and and everybody that's been attacking fixed fortifications since it came around had to come up with a way of getting through that wire. Because if you can do that, if you can blast a hole in that wire, all of a sudden it's like an open door and you can run right in. You know, in World War I, one of the attempts to do this was to blast it with artillery, just an overwhelming amount of artillery coming down on the wire. And it kind of worked. The amount of artillery required was mind-numbing. And in some cases, it just turned it into a, a bigger mess. You know, would you rather have one strand of barbed wire or a hundred yards of just a gobbled mess of wire twisted in every direction? I don't know. One of the ways that's been developed to reduce these obstacles is something called a satchel charge. A satchel charge is an eight pound explosive that, that looks like it comes in, you know, almost a little bag and the eight pounds of explosive are enough to destroy a guard tower blow down a gate, or breach a hole in the wire. Now, in terms of size of explosives, we're talking eight pounds. A grenade, standard grenade, has about half a pound of explosives. Now, there's a different purpose for a grenade. It's designed to spit out fragmentary bits to wound or kill individual soldiers, whereas the satchel charge is just designed to blow something up. And it does a great job of that, especially when it's placed right near a perimeter position. Now, one of the challenges is you can't throw it from very far away. A grenade is like a like a little ball. You can see how you can throw that some distance. Satchel charge, eight pounds, kind of irregularly shaped. It's not meant to be lo- thrown a long way. On March 1st, 1969, less than a year after Private First Class Daniel Bruce joined the service, he is manning a defensive position on Firebase Tomahawk in Vietnam. It's the early morning hours and one of the toughest guard shifts to hold that, you know, two to 6 a.m. when the sun is on its way up, your body is telling you you should be sleeping right now. It's a tough time to pull guard shift. Nonetheless, that's what Private First Class Daniel Bruce is doing. He's in a position on the perimeter with a couple other Marines 
when you hear some rustling outside the wire. All of a sudden, one of these satchel charges comes into their position and lands at his feet. Now you have a challenge right now because you often hear people say, well, why not just throw it back? Take the grenade, throw it back. That easy. But Bruce has an issue with the satchel charge making its way into his position. They're not easy to throw. And even if he does throw it back, can he throw it back far enough to where it won't still destroy their position and open up that door into the American position? Remember, it's the early morning hours of March 1st. Most of the people in the firebase are asleep. If this goes off on the perimeter and breaches the wire, as is the goal of the enemy soldier that threw it, they could just about overrun the entire position, kill dozens or more Americans in the process. So Bruce has a decision to make. He could, I mean, if he, if he doesn't want to destroy the wire, he can't throw it to his left or right. That's not going to do any good. He could throw it to the rear, but again, how far do you have to throw it? 20 feet? 40? I don't know. He didn't know. So what he did, without hesitation, he grabbed that explosive device, hugged it to his chest, yelled at his fellow Marines that there was a satchel charge in their bunker, and took off running to an open area behind the front line, behind the perimeter. Took off running because that was the only place where it could detonate and not risk breaching the wire. As he was running away from the fellow Marines so they wouldn't be wounded, the device went off and Private First Class Daniel Bruce was killed instantly. Now, because he ran away from the Marines and away from the perimeter, those Marines lived, the perimeter was not breached, and they were able to hold up their defense and keep the enemy at bay. What's crazy to me about this story and what stands out to me is remember we talked about him joining the Marines in May of 1968. This action where he gave his life and for which he'd be awarded the Medal of Honor is March 1969. It's less than a year in uniform. You know, yesterday we did a podcast about Master Sergeant Gary Gordon and Sergeant First Class Randy Shugart in the Battle of Mogadishu. They were Delta Force snipers. They'd been in the service for, I mean, almost two decades They'd seen it all, done it all, had all the experience, all the leadership schools. They'd, they'd done everything. You hear that story and you think, well, they've, they've got the experience. They know what they're getting into. And then you look at somebody like Private First Class Daniel Bruce, who hasn't even been in uniform for a year. He didn't learn this in basic training. This, taking that explosive device and recognizing the only way to save his buddies and potentially the entire base was to run with it as far away as he could get from that vulnerable position. That's not something they taught. That's something that was in his character. That's who he was. I just, I get, I get caught up thinking that you, in in many of these cases, there's some level of knowledge or experience that, that helps help somebody act in a certain way to know what they're doing. This is just instinct. This is just instinct of this can't go off here. The repercussions would be too grave. Too many of my friends would die. And he said, enough. Grabbed it. Took off running. Gave his own life in the process. And for those actions would be awarded posthumously 
the Medal of Honor. Hey, thanks for listening to War Stories. If you get a chance, it'd mean an awful lot if you could head over to Apple or Spotify or wherever you listen to your podcast and leave a review. It helps others to, to find the show. But thanks again for listening. We'll see you next time.